Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast, brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to fishman.com for more info. And now your host, Al Levy. Welcome to the Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast. I am Al Levy, and with me is an engineer, producer, mixer that I think you should know about. It's Mr. Eric Ron. Thank you for being here. I am happy to be here. Hey, guys. Eric Ron here on the uh, ones and twos. I, I've always wanted to say that. I don't, I don't entirely know what that means. <laughs> on the fives and the ten. On the fives and the tens. I, I, yeah. Uh, it's like when they uh, when they give you like the traffic and the weather on the fives and the tens. Oh yeah. Well, in LA, that means uh, you're not going anywhere because those are yeah. two freeways with heavy traffic. So, but I've got a keyboard <laughs> in front of me with a one and a two. So that's that's what I literally mean. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I'm so you know. to be here. Yeah. Now you know. And for those of you who don't know who he is, he's worked with bands like Attila, Issues, like Moths to Flames. Slaves, I Prevail, list just goes on and on and on and on. Bless the Fall, Micah Relocate. You know, I could go on and on and on, but the list just keeps going and I'm not going to keep going. Basically, <laughs> no, no, no one basically, has time for that. You've worked with some bands that I worked people with a few. know of. I've worked with a few. And I heard that you came up through NRG. I did, actually. Probably no one over there remembers me except Jay. But that that's was... not that's not true. Um, really? Because uh, Josh Newell, who I was hanging out with about a month ago when we were in L.A. for the Mishuga Nail the Mix, um, when you came to that dinner, that dinner which was like, which had like all the producer people there. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was like, "Hey, that's Eric Ron. He used to be one of our interns." That's right. See, more than more than one person remembered. That's right. We've touched base about once every five years, and I'm hoping to remedy that and keep in touch with him because he's a wonderful human being. Yeah, yeah, the best. Yeah, and so my um, my very first internship was at NRG. My dream studio, like my end goal, was like be at NRG, and then within like a month of starting my career, I interned there. I was like, this is it. I hit the big time. Like, it's only up from here. And (laughs) I uh, painted a lot. And that was pretty much the extent of my internship is I was a, <laughs> I was a professional free, I was a painter for Coffin Case when they owned that building down the street. So it wasn't quite as uh, sexy as I hoped, but I got to do a couple things there that were really cool and memorable and heard some cool stories and walked in on a guy doing blow in the bathroom my first day. That, that <laughs> was a new experience for me. I cleaned a bong. I was like 18 years old. I, I, I my, my world was, uh, you know, I was Where ready for the from? big time. I'm from San Francisco. Okay. So it's not like you came from podunk. No, no, it wasn't too much of a culture change for me. Okay. It just happened to be that it was inside of NRG. It was an NRG bong. Yep. NRG bong. I mean, I, I didn't mess around with a lot of paraphernalia, you know, and I, it, to me, like it didn't sink in that like, studios are okay with drugs like it like it didn't quite hit me yet interesting 
So did you did you get any work done there, or was it mainly just you know doing doing the things that they needed you to do? If I'm being honest, I spent one day in the recording studio with with this guy who was awesome. He's an engineer. His name is Dan Serda. And he was he was um, really nice to me and probably one of the more friendly engineers. And he came in and was like, hey, come come work on this session with me. And and I think it was like a downtime session or a friend thing. It wasn't anybody famous, but I just, I, you know, I, I pretended like this was the highest thing that I could ever do. And I just tried to give it 100%. And did it lead to anything? It certainly did not. Well, you still got to <laughs> give it 100%. Absolutely. You never know. So... Whatever came of the NRG uh, party then, internship party, like you know, what did that lead to? How long did you stay? Well, I was there for three months, and uh, I got the old, hey, we could hire you, but there's you know six runners that have been here for three years, and we'll just we're gonna just get someone else out of work for free. And I was like, well, okay, I get it, <laughs> you know. So my experience with it was was really kind of seeing. My, it was really my first time around celebrities, and that was kind of cool. Like just like walking by Avril Lavigne, just kind of learning how to hold it all in. You know, it was like I wasn't starstruck, but it's like you got to get used to that kind of thing. What did you want to say to her? Oh, I don't know. Marry me. Uh, <laughs> something You're along so those lines. Beautiful. You're yeah. So beautiful. It was. You know, the things I wanted to say, I think would have would have kind of garnered a five hundred foot radius clause. So uh, I think I think at that point I just walked past and smiled and giggled a little inside and moved on with my day, <laughs> you know, and, and kind of with meeting celebrities or bands I look up to, I kind of I've always taken the Barry Sanders approach, which is act like you've done it before and you're going to do it again. And so I've always kind of taken taken that vibe. And so I cut, you know, no matter what. And and it was kind of interesting because when I came up in the Bay Area music scene as like a, as a singer and as a band dude there was a band that was just killing it and this I'm going to take it back here we're going back we're going back to 2000 Go back. we're going back to 2003 and there it's was like a, a drip on the time machine. Right? It is. I could go I can go further back if you want, but we we can start it there. We'll and stop. We'll take a, a pit stop at 2003. Perfect. So we're taking a short little time time lapse here and we've got 2003 we've got this band called strata some of you might remember it some of you won't but uh they had a, a song on madden and and that was a big deal back in that in that time and so they were friends of mine and they always liked my band and i love theirs and they were like the one of the first bands in that like hard rock world to really like get signed to wind up and like start making it you know and so when I was interning there, they actually were mixing with Jay Baumgartner. And so it was nice to like have someone be like, Eric, oh my God. And it was like, it made me feel like, all right, I can be one of these people too. You know, and so they, yeah, so they guided me through, you know, so they kind of gave me a little bit of like, hey, this guy is cool, fuck with him. So I think that it's really interesting. A lot of people will say that they meet somebody or they see somebody in real life and then they realize that dude can do it, I can do it too. Totally. And you realize how dumb we are and you're like, this is totally possible. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, little uh, little inside secret about everybody at the top is that 
they're just figuring it out as much as anybody else. And um, the people at the top are idiots, just like everybody else. They still don't know where the fuck their lives are going. And <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. One of the things I always talk to people about is like, what's fascinating about this world and the music industry is that there really is no rule book. There's no school for it. It's a bunch of cowboys and Indians and we're just gunslinging. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's, it's amazing that this kind of situation is here to you know, this this didn't exist when I was coming up, when I was learning recording. Like, I couldn't YouTube getting a cool guitar tone. Like, that didn't exist. <laughs> Man, there, well, you know, the reason we do Nail the Mix and all that stuff is because we're trying to create something that didn't exist when we were trying to learn. Um, because when we were trying to learn, it was like the Arctic Tundra out there for information. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was rough stuff. So we're trying to give... And now there's a lot of bad information. So we're trying to be like an oasis where if you want to learn how to do heavy music of all genres, we are the credible place for it. Like an oasis, an online oasis for learning how to do heavy stuff. And uh, yeah, and because it is like the Wild West, it does have like 30 foot walls around it and turrets. Yeah. <laughs> turrets on the outside. It really is, and, and you, you know, it's got it's got its ups, it's got its downs, but really, we're all uneducated and and just trying to do the best we can, right? Always. Well, you never really know which way the ship is really going to sail, so you have to do your best to anticipate it, and you have to just do your best in all situations because you also don't know ever who is going to becomes something great. Yeah, absolutely. It's so much about timing, luck, and a little bit of skill. Yeah, for sure. So back in 2003, Jay Baumgartner, you saw him and were like, okay, I can do that. Absolutely. And he was always really nice, and he was very quiet. And I, I kind of expected the rock star producer, which is kind of an ironic phrase now. It doesn't entirely exist, but I, I anticipated him being like this. I don't know. In my head, I anticipated uh, like a, like P Diddy or something. You know, I was like, this guy's gonna be flashy and like he owns the rock world. And he was just quiet, went along his day, like said hi to people and moved on. And it was like, oh, you can like you can be a real person and have an amazing studio with amazing accolades, you know, and, and it was it was really cool to see that. You don't have to be, like, do you remember that movie? Did you ever see The Doors by Oliver Stone? I didn't see that one. Oh, well, there's a producer in there who's like, he's he like says baby a lot to, to the musicians. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I actually say that a lot to my guys <laughs> and girls. So Awesome. So maybe I saw it in like in my sleep or in a past life. But I, that's I, awesome. <laughs> you know, it's like using the tension, baby. You know, it's like all just lightening the mood and, and creating the vibe. I, I think I use baby probably more than a lot of other producers. That's amazing. Um, so fast forward a little then. What happens after 2003? Yeah, let's let's fast forward a little bit. So I got dumped from NRG, which I'm I'll be forever salty about. Not not too salty. <laughs> but I'll always like, you know, it's, st- it's still my dream to like do a record at NRG and walk in and, you know, I know and now it's attainable, but 
it's, it'll always be, you know, and my studio is actually a block away. I could probably throw something at it if I if I aim and I give it, if I put some, some you know, muscle into it. <laughs> but, you know, after that, I kind of licked my wounds a little bit and I moved back up to San Francisco and I... I went there for a girl, which, as all of you know, is always the best choice. It is always... Definitely always. That always goes well. Always goes well. So I went up there, and I interned at this studio in Mountain View, California, called Studio Habiki. It doesn't exist now. I don't even think it existed then, but it was this this Silicon (laughs) Valley mogul (laughs) <laughs> that uh, it said, hey, I want a studio. And so I saw it on Craigslist and, and I went in for a meeting and I was like, I'm your guy because like no one else was, was trying to intern there. Like there's no music world over there. Like I, it was just me. And they're like, well, you're the only guy, so you're hired. I'm like, boom. So I went in and there were no clients. They just built a studio and kind of kind of went for the whole if you build it, they will come mentality. And they didn't come because it was expensive as shit, I remember. And, you know, you can't have NRG prices in Mountain View, California. But they had an amazing studio. And so, really, I went every day because I had nothing else to do. I, did, I lived at home with my parents. I was 18. And I just started getting fast at Pro Tools. And you name it, I, I must have edited drums 500 times on the same song. I just like just practiced and I got better and better and quicker and I like I wanted to be the fastest guy in the West, you know, since we're talking about cowboys and Indians. I just wanted to mm-hmm. be quick and efficient. So, you know, I it really really helped me in that way. I feel like I was wasting time a little bit, but it was kind of like you know how Kobe just shoots for six hours a day. Like I edited drums six hours a day. Like that's what I did. You know that makes sense. I mean, look, it's a repetitive task, and what matters is how fast and accurate you are with it. The, if you're accurate and super fast, you will be employed. Yeah, and I think the biggest, the biggest thing I can say to anyone who's up and coming and wants to be into engineering is make sure that attention to detail is your number one thing. Because if you did it extremely fast, you're like, here we go, man. And I see mistakes because I see it right away. You know, I'll let you have it. And because attention to detail is way more important to me than speed. Absolutely. And you'd be surprised. And sometimes I'll get sessions where I just scratch my head. And, And some of them are even from from big guys and I just going like this, this can't be real like this can't be a thing and 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 it is and so I've just tried to make sure that that my stuff doesn't have that it's it's always kind of shocking when you get a session from a big guy and it's like wow who the hell edited that yeah and and I get it you know there's a there's a there's a kind of thing where you don't really expect anyone to see it and so you know it's like cleaning your room and you put a couple things under the rug and you you miss a few spots and you're like ah no one's ever going to look and then someone comes in with like a big light and shines it over and you see everything <laughs> and you're like oh man so like i understand i understand that aspect of it but i i try to avoid it at all costs now nowadays do you edit your own drums i do not you must you must have someone pretty trustworthy working for you yes i have a guy who's been with me for years and you know I taught them everything I know and uh, he's very detail oriented and quick and his name is Adrian Alvarado for anyone that wants to check him out and he's my right hand man and and you know I really tried to build a team of people that that I can trust and that 
and that want to be here and, and get it done for me and really just help the process move quicker. Adrian. Adrian, hashtag hero. Adrian, Basically. hashtag hero. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So you basic. So I think that this is interesting and I want to point this out to those of you who are listening, who have heard about my history of when I would practice guitar 12 hours a day and not leave my apartment for three weeks at a time when I was trying to get good. And how I have always told you guys to approach your DAW like an instrument, um, meaning learn it like you would an instrument. And here you have Eric Ron saying that he must have edited the same drums 500 times because a basketball player he looks up to uh, practiced for X amount of time. So that's kind of how you got to look at these things. You got to practice them enough until you literally are a virtuoso of your DAW. Because I'm telling you, the guys who get the gigs are fucking flying fast. Like the first time that I met one of these assistant engineer types was when I went to England to work with Colin Richardson. And he had a dude named Matt Hyde running Pro Tools. And the guy was just like, the guy must have been, like, if my RPMs were 2,400, he was at 15,000 or something. <laughs> yeah, like, he was moving so fucking fast in Pro Tools. I could not handle it. I couldn't handle how fucking fast he was moving. And then I went to a few other studios, and I saw that these pro assistant engineer Pro Tool operator guys were just editing drums in, like, four minutes a song. It's like, whoa, it takes me, like, three hours. What am I doing wrong? And, uh, and yeah, then I practiced for a long time. So I think listeners, pay close attention to what Eric said. Take Practice drugs. your asses off. Oh, yeah, that, take too. <laughs> That too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I've always tried to take the mentality, and, and, and as as integrated as it is now, I really feel like practicing your craft as an engineer over a producer has to come first because you need to know the fundamentals. And when I was coming up, my goal because when I when I was coming up, there was actually different roles. Like you could be a producer and not know how to use a computer. So I was like a transport guy, and I, I'll get into that later. But I always wanted to be an extension of the producer's mind. I wanted to do, I wanted to be able to do the thing he was going to say before he even said it. And I, I'll get into that more, but it's, but it's definitely putting yourself in that situation where it's like you don't know you're slow until you see someone else flying through it and you're like, shit, I am slow. <laughs> like I need to, and it's not, it's not a race. But at the same time, you're going to get those gigs because of the quality work you do in an efficient amount of time. It's, it is interesting that you, uh, that you might think you're fast until you see someone else. I feel like local bands suffer from this, too. Um, when a local band thinks that they're the hot shit and that they're going to get signed, I'm sure you've worked with some local bands who yeah. just don't, don't have a good, uh, a, good, a good take on reality. No. And then they uh, they get to somehow open up for like Behemoth or something, and uh, you know they sold enough tickets and something happens and they get to play on the same stage as Behemoth and then it's like the the sad trombone. <laughs> it's yeah. like you know you suck. Yeah, you, why don't you see how the big boys do it? Yeah, it, it's really easy when you're not. I guess the moral of the story is that if you're not out there 
seeing what people are doing, if you're not being shown where the bar is for expectation, if you're just locked in your room and not interacting or seeking information, then you might trick yourself into thinking that you're doing just fine when the world has lapped you many times over. Um, and, you know, with mouse speed, that's certainly that's certainly one of those things. You might think you're fast at Pro Tools, and then you somehow get to teleport into Dan Korneff's room. Well, no, he doesn't use Pro Tools. So uh, <laughs> you, yes, you, get to, you get to teleport into uh, the Churko's the Churko's studio, and then you see what fast on Pro Tools really means. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's crazy. You you can't you can't use yourself as a gauge, I guess. No, no, not at all, not at all. And and you know, I think even kind of moving along to where I was talking about with that story is is you know there weren't really any bands like like that could even afford the studio if I wanted to record these bands. And I wasn't even charging. I just wanted to get him in and show what I could do, and and try to really like get better at my craft because I knew I knew that I had a, a long way to go. I never at a certain point, especially back then, was like, "I'm ready for the big time." It was like baby steps for me. I think that that's smart. That's I think more people should uh, should take a baby steps mentality. Actually, absolutely. I think it's important to have your long-term goal and knowing your short steps to get there because you can't skip the line. The only way you can really skip the line is if you are uh, in a very, very big famous band and all of a sudden you want to record bands. I'm seeing a lot of this lately. And people just record, they'll record with you because they just want to kind of smell the back of your head while you're working. And, and you know, that's a, <laughs> that's a way to do it. You know, but I, I can I can think of one, but I'm not going to name them. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a ton, and and it's not a knock on them because that's you know a lot of people get enamored by the studio. I've seen it in in bands that I've produced, developing bands. Like I could tell the people who are paying extra attention to every click that I'm making, and some of them even just quit their band and want to just record bands after because why why do I have to tour when I can just do this and be creative all the time? Like let's do this. So I'll see it and and I'll know I'll spot it right away. And, hey, and that was me. Yeah, that was you know? me. That I toured for a long time and uh, got the opportunity to go full time with Jason Sukoff and Mark Lewis at Audio Hammer and that goodbye touring career. Yeah, and, and that's the move you have to take. And you know, I did the band thing for a while, and I and to me that was my dream. And engineering was my backup plan which is not a very same. smart backup plan same here <laughs> <laughs> but but god damn it i wasn't gonna fail at one of them and i knew i knew it just wasn't an option for me seems like it worked out just fine so let, so let's talk about this scenario so you respond to an ad and these multimillionaires built a studio basically out on a whim yep and it basically just kind of turned into your training grounds because no clients were really going to come in there at those prices. So you had this awesome place decked out to just use as like your studio gym. Yeah, that's it, exactly what it was. I got to test out gear that I couldn't afford with microphones that I couldn't afford. 
state-of-the-art equipment. I mean, it even had this control surface that had like 128 channels. Like, what are you going to do with 128 faders? It's a, it's like a, at the time, it was probably like a $120,000 mouse. Like, there was no, mm-hmm. there was, well, the guy's was like, like, a, like... Was it like an Icon or something? It was before Icon. It was, um, I want to say a control. Oh, man, I wish I remembered the name. It wasn't the... It might have been the control tw- no way before that. Oh man, I'll have to look it up. But it was whatever the icon was for two thousand and one or two thousand and two. Pro remote. Ah, I don't even remember. I, sh- I should know better. Yeah, it doesn't matter. But it was a long time ago. Anyway, it was useless. I never used it at all. I mean, it had the monitor section on it. <laughs> that was about it. But it had the the nicest Genelex you could buy. It had surround sound. I don't think we ever used it. it. Even had tape machines, which I never plugged in. It just sat there. Like, th- I mean, I want to know where all the money came from and if I could get some of that. And I actually <laughs> found, I, I about three months into it, I found where the money came from because the building, the office was attached to the studio, and I went into. Uh, we needed something, and I went in and I found out the hard way what it was. It was a Japanese porn company. Yes, look, yes. I don't remember what it was called, but I walked in and saw something horrendous on the screen. Yes, <laughs> and I just I was shocked. Like this, like this was dirty money, and. And I loved every second of it. And I think that's actually when I kind of started to ask for, like, more participation in stuff. Like, maybe they'll put me in on a session. I, I don't know what it was. I, 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 to be honest, a I still don't know what it was. my did. own heart. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was 18. I was just, in, I was just stoked that, that this actually existed. I, I didn't know. You never know who makes this kind of stuff. And so I started to kind of... Once I knew where the money came from, I was like, all right, I don't feel bad asking if I can record a band here. Nothing's happening, you know? And and then, like, eventually with it, there was just no room for growth. It was like, all right, I, I think I've, I think I've uh, cataloged snare samples or something from CDs enough. Like, it was a bunch of busy work. You know, I got to record a few things that, that I was, I think, proud of. I haven't listened to it. But I also, that's where I learned my first boner moment, which was unplugging a hard drive while transferring. And you're all going to go through this because you're not going to think about it. But it was the first time I lost a session. It was gone. So I had to, so I paid out of my own pocket to re-record this whole thing because I was a dingus. Man, we all go through those. Mine happened when I had both my hard drives and this was this was before the days of cloud backups and everything. Oh yeah. I had both my drives backing up and syncing up when my place got struck by lightning. Holy shit. Why well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, holy shit is right and it wiped both of them. Oh my god. Dude, it was so bad. I lost two albums on it. Luckily, one one of the bands was sitting there with me yeah. and saw what happened, and so I recorded them for free from the start. They were they were really cool. I mean, they saw they saw the 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 explosion like literally like a giant spark came out of my computer and like <laughs> it was so bad, dude. I lost I lost a lot of gear. So oh. they were they were so cool about it. This other band thought I just made it up and ditched me. Um, oh, that's that's unfortunate. At least you have a good excuse. I, I don't have that excuse. Well, I mean, it's a good excuse if they believe you. 
mm-hmm. but it's also one of those things where it's like my dog ate my homework kind of thing. It's like my studio got struck by lightning and I lost your record. It's like, yeah, right. You just lost our record. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if they don't believe you, I think they got bigger issues. It's that's quite an excuse to make up. Yeah, I mean, I've never really. That's the only time I've ever lost somebody's records. But, but yeah, so we all do it. It happens. Yeah. <laughs> and so once that kind of ran its course and then and then I'm going to uh, give you guys a huge curveball surprise here. That girl I moved up, you know, to the Bay Area for, she dumped Chelsea me. Chelsea Clinton? Yeah, <laughs> uh, something like oh, that. Oh, it wasn't Chelsea Clinton. I thought that was going to be the... Uh the the big curveball not not quite but uh she dumped you she dumped me and i went what am i doing with my life and what a su- <laughs> yeah so but water's wet right when you move for a girl you lose your ambition that you're not the same person i see it time and time again in bands it, that's a whole nother thing we can get into but you know ultimately now so is it okay with you if i even go further back than 2003 because it's part yeah. of the story Let's step back into the hot tub time machine. Dude. All right. So some of you probably weren't even born yet. I'm not even that old, but I but I started young. So when I was 13 or so, a band changed my life forever, and that band was called Incubus. Because I grew up, my influences were hip hop and rock, and there was new metal. But this was the first time rock to me was cool, and it had this this urban feel to it but it wasn't new metal and i was a huge new metal fan but this was like in the maturing process of my ears and and what i like to hear and brandon boyd just did it for me and lyrically and everything and and it just really put me in a situation that i felt changed everything for me and so i wanted to show my gratitude and i was always a little bit of a computer nerd as well i was always kind of nerdy so i made a website it was called incubusonline.com Please reach out to me if any of you ever went to this website. Please, I would love to hear who actually like witnessed this website because it actually started to get really big and it was getting three or four million hits a month, which at the time was was very, very big. I even had help. That's that's still big. Is it? I, I don't even know. Now, I f- yeah, I guess I guess so. But and so I was and I was. It's at- still big, dude. Three okay. or four million hits a month. That's good. I think it was even. I, I believe it was even featured in Rolling Stone magazine in a little blurb, and even uh, the Incubus team. So I got an email from Steve Rennie's team, who was Incubus's manager at the time. Redman. Yeah, and it was. It wasn't him though. It was a guy named Adam, and they said, "Hey, like we hate our official site. It takes way too long to." to get things updated and whatever. He's like, can we give you news and info to post and in return, like you can have backstage passes whenever we come to LA. And I was like, oh Oh, shit. Like (laughs) I made it like the movie Almost Famous. Like in my head, it was about to be like that. (laughs) Like I'm almost famous. And so my dad took me to the first few shows, which is embarrassing, but you know, you do what you gotta do. And I had- Well, how old were you? I was 14 maybe. Of course your dad took you. Yeah, I was 14, something around that, and I got to like hang with them Dude, a little bit. So you did you did this at 14? Yeah, I was I always had a little bit of an entrepreneurial 
uh, stance on life because I grew up in Obviously. a in a very middle you know, like middle class family, but my mom was convinced we were poor. Always, always, always. And so she was the kind of mom, and I love her to death for it. I'm forever grateful. She was the kind of person that would take me to Toys R Us, but we wouldn't buy anything. And then I'd have to be the guy like, why are we even here? And she's like, yeah, I, at least I took you. <laughs> you know, and, and so I was always like, if I, <laughs> I had the mentality that if I wanted something, I was going to get it. I was going to take it. And so I started nannying at age 12. Ironically, I was nannying for a vocal coach and their kids. So th- that that comes down the line later in, in a story too. But, you know, it got to the point the website was getting big. And I was actually making about $800 a month in advertising revenue as a kid. And so it was it was pretty it was pretty amazing. I was really happy and I had a guy in LA I needed help with the website. So I met this guy online. His name was Marty Sobo. He's probably going to hear this. And so shout out to Marty and we just remained friends and he was 10 years older than than me and he came up once to San Francisco. I'm I, I can only imagine what my mom was thinking. When we went to an incubus show and <laughs> this guy ten years older than me is like, Hey, I'm here to pick up your son. She you know, she didn't even flinch. She was like, Cool, take him. <laughs> like now that I think about it, it was probably it could have been real dangerous. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I met him and we just kept in touch and we became good friends and so when I told him I wanted to move to LA, I ended up moving in with him. And so when I when I moved up to the bay, when I moved back to the bay, I talked to Marty. I was like, I got to get back down to LA. Like, what am I doing with my life? And Marty ended up going to recording schools, or he went to music business school at Musicians Institute, which is where I went. And he knew some people. He's like, I can get you into the studio, you know, come on down. And, and I don't know, like, I just had a wild hair at my ass. I left. I took, I just took off. I didn't care. I, I just wanted to get down there. And so I, I got introduced from Marty to a few guys. So, wait, so did you run away from home? I didn't run away. I said, uh, I'm going back to L.A. It's the quickest I can go. And my parents are all about it. They're, they've well, always how been... Old, how old were you at this point? Oh, at this point, uh, I was 18. Oh, okay. So, so a little bit of time went by. Had, yeah, yeah, yeah. So four years had passed. Yeah. Okay. And it got to the point... I even got an, an offer to... Uh, Someone wanted to buy the website off me for like quite a bit of money. And then it ended up falling through last second, but someone did end up buying the website off of me. It wasn't for very much money. It was just time to move on. But I remained close with everyone. The, the website might still exist. I haven't been to it in 10 years. So I'm going. I'm looking right now. Check it out if it's on there. Incubus. Online. Online. Does it exist? Is it there anymore? Um, Does it redirect to CNN? What does it do? The ultimate source for everything Incubus. Oh, yes. That is Home, awesome. art, history, members, concert, discs, facts. That is awesome. Yeah, still there. <laughs> yeah, so so <laughs> I'm, I'm fast-forwarding a little bit, and, and I so I met with some people that Marty introduced me to, and they said, hey, we need an assistant engineer. Or like, why don't you come down? And I was like, Say say no more. I'll be here next week. You know, so maybe two weeks later, I moved. To this was September two thousand five. I'll never forget this time in my life. It, it was wild. So it was two thousand five September. I moved down, and I get situated, and I'm living with Marty in Woodland Hills, California. 
And a few days, I get situated. I call the studio, and I say, "Hey, I'm I'm here. I'm ready. Let me know when you want me to come in." And he goes, "Hey, man, we're closing." <laughs> and I and I said, "You're what?" He goes, "Yeah, we're we're gonna shut down." And I said, "Wait, you're kidding me, right? Like you you knew I was moving down here for this?" He goes, "Yeah, sorry, man." And like that was one of the last times I ever talked to him. Just like. Just like surprise, we're closing after you moved. Yep, yep. And th- that so that was one of my real big like welcome to LA moments. Like n- everything can change, like in a blink of an eye. So just be ready. Yeah, <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> yeah. So so you know, but I was pretty optimistic about. It. I'm like, you know what? I'm a songwriter. I'm I'm, I'm in a band. Well, like real quick, what what was you when you first heard that? What was your initial feeling? How did you react? I ate an entire package of Oreos. Okay. (laughs) Did you have, like, that sinking feeling in your stomach? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I I really... I really was devastated. Yeah, my roommate walked in. I was on the couch eating Oreos, and he's like, did you eat the whole thing? And I said, I blacked out. I can't stop. And I I was pretty desolate for a second. (laughs) And how long did it take for you to snap out of it and about 48 hours so i i went okay. i went directly to that's that's an acceptable amount of time yeah yeah exactly because i'm like well i can't pay my rent currently so let's get to work you know and so i got a job at best buy in home theater and i'm like you know what i'm gonna write songs i'm gonna work on my craft i'm gonna wait it out and see what happens and so i was there for about two weeks and i got a call from someone I met through Marty and he said, Hey, I need some drums edited. Can you, can you come in? And I was like, you, I'll be there as soon as you need me. So I, I got off of work. I went there and, and I was the, I was the most confident at drum editing. Cause I told you I did it about 600 times at this point. Mm-hmm. So I was ready, like put me in, I'll, I'll nail this thing. And so I go in, I, I go in and the artist's name was after midnight project. And they were signed to an indie label, and it was at this a, a different studio in Woodland Hills, and it was a privately owned studio that had SSL boards, the works. Like it was, it was the big time for me. It was the first like real thing I did. Were you wearing Were you wearing your Best Buy uniform when you showed up? <laughs> I was not. I should have though. Bummer. Oh, well. <laughs> I should have. <laughs> and you know, the artist was so nice to me. His name was Jason Evigan. He's actually a really big songwriter right now, but the band was called After Midnight Project. And he he was with me the whole time. Couldn't have been nicer to me. And and while that was happening, there was like a huge falling out in the other room. I heard some yelling, some there was just some commotion. I couldn't tell what was happening in the and the producer, which I barely knew. I barely met him. He storms in and he's just like, hey you and he like points at me and goes, You know how to record? And I was like, yeah. He's like, come on in. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and I came in and I, and I re- did some recording. He was, and I kind of looked around. It was like a very high-pressure situation. And he's like, all right, you know how to mix? I'm like, yeah, of course. You know, and I do a little mixing. And, and he's like, all right, cool. Like, you want to work here? And I was just like, yeah. He's like, all right, you're in. Like, let's do this. And it was like the strangest thing for me because I, it started out with, you know, it was like, at, like talk about at the right place at the right time. What happened? Did someone just get fired right then and there? I think there? there was just a falling out with the engineer. I don't actually know what happened. 
I don't care because it changed everything for me. So thank you to that fight, you know. <laughs> and it was it was very very high pressure. I was not prepared, but I but I just took the opportunity, and no one told me that I fucked it up or didn't know what I was doing. I didn't necessarily feel confident, but but I was definitely when I was first starting out, I was overcompensating. Yeah, I probably was a lot more arrogant than I should have been. You know, but I had to prove, and I didn't want anyone to know my age. I didn't want anyone to, you know, I think I was 19 at this point. And mm-hmm. so I just kind of acted like I've done it before and I'm going to do it again. You know, I'm going to keep going back to Barry Sanders, even though I'm a Cleveland Browns fan. But whatever, Barry Sanders I, is my favorite football player of all time. So how did you go about handling the stress or the adrenaline and just keeping a cool head? You know, stress didn't exist for me then. That, there was nothing stressful about that. It was all. I, I wasn't at that point. Like I, I, nothing stressed. I think the only thing that stressed me out was trying to get paid from these label situations. When in two thousand, I mean, not a whole lot has changed, but in two thousand five, it was like you build a label and like hopefully in ninety days you see something. And it was like when you're yeah. when you're just starting, when you're paycheck to paycheck, that shit does not work. Okay, so basically. It sounds to me like you had already done all this stuff before through your little, uh, let's just say, through your training level exactly. <laughs> at that other studio. And so did you? were you just kind of like in the mindset of just doing what you do? Exactly. That's, that's all I wanted to do is just show people that I knew what I was doing and wait for someone to tell me otherwise. And, and I guess... I guess no one really did, and so I got the confidence, and I, you know, I felt trained from recording school, like, on a board. It wasn't too much time went by that, like, I knew how to work a 4K, an SSL 4K, for anyone who doesn't know what a 4K is. It's a console, it's analog, it's not a plug-in. I know they make one now, but it, it you know, and it's it, the real thing. And heat radiates off of it, a lot of it. And so I felt fairly confident. I probably shouldn't have, but I really felt comfortable with that board. If it was a new board, I probably would have been screwed. And there, you know, there was some growing pains along the way, but uh, such is life. Yeah, such is life. Yeah. So, so they were confident in you and did you end up finishing that record i did i ended up being the engineer on the whole record and then i ended up being the chief engineer i say the word chief like like to make it sound more important but i was like the the only engineer at this studio which had two rooms in it and it was privately owned it was in a guy's house but it was you know there were hundreds of thousands of dollars put into it and so really my job from there was was to be an assistant engineer or an engineer to a producer is really like anyone who who rented the studio out. And so that was time that, that I'm forever grateful for because it gave me the ability to work with different producers under different pressure situations. I think one of the first gigs I ever had from that was a producer named John Fields. And he was famous for doing, he did the second Jimmy Eat World record. He did, oh, nice. he did uh, I think, a bunch of the early Switchfoot stuff. And he was working with Clay Aiken at the time. So, like, my first, like, real famous guy I met was Clay Aiken. He was, for anyone who doesn't know, he was an American Idol, either winner or, like, a high-up contestant. But he, ha- he had his moment in the sun. Yeah, I mean, that was a big name. That was a really big name. <laughs> yeah, and so... I remember him. 
That one, I didn't do any engineering, but I was in the room and I was helping set up John Fields, who was really nice to me. And he ended up actually recording there a bunch. And so we, we spent a little bit of time together, but he was also an engineer. So I didn't do a whole lot. That was mainly just mic setups, so you know, assisting. Patching. Exactly. I was assisting and I didn't mind it at all because I was really still learning and, and I learned some cool, tr- you know, like my first favorite vocal signal chain came from working with him. He was all about API into a distressor. And that, I used that for years. That was Dude, my... A- API into a distressor. Um, SM7B into an API into a distressor. Yep. Can't go wrong. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes an 1176 after that distressor. Sure. And uh, got some magic. Exactly. And so he he kind of taught me how to get the bite from a vocal. And, and there's no better chain for getting bite than an API into a distressor. It's just screams, just transients and consonants, like everything cuts through. And yes, so that was, that was it for me. Like that was, that was my chain until I adapted it a little bit. And I actually still have, I'm staring at it while we're talking going like, Oh, maybe I should go back to that. <laughs> but you know, uh, and it's such a the distressor is a very easy compressor for anyone that wants to spend you know a grand on a on a easy to use compressor. You guys should get a distressor because you really can't mess it up. It's a great if it's a compressor that I'd say that if if you're at a point where you're like okay I want to start buying some outboard like uh, you've got your monitors your room your computer all that is good you re- really want some outboard in your life. Start with the distressor. Mm-hmm. This is Couldn't my agree opinion. more. Couldn't agree yeah. more. And then from that point, there was just different different genres, different. So it, it really put me in some situations that influenced me in my career now. Like I, I ended up working for DJ Quick, which is this legendary West Coast producer. You know, so I got to work on tracks with Nate Dog and Chingy. And exhibit and all like I was getting credible like I was working on some some real shit and I was getting really stoked and and at the same time I kept my job at Best Buy only on Sundays because I was so I was so prepared for all of this to end like I was still a little bit in shock this was only maybe like six months in to my career at this point of like actually making money doing music that I did so Sundays I worked for way less money doing way harder work at Best Buy you know and and it all kind of came to a screeching halt when I was selling TVs on a Sunday and John Fields walks in which is the producer that I was kind of working for at the time and he, he see, came to. He saw you at Best Buy. He saw me at Best Buy, <laughs> and he goes, "Air," uh, and I was like, "Oh shit!" I'm in my fucking blue outfit and in my khakis, and and he's just like Eric, and I'm like, "Hey, John." He's like, "What are you doing here?" And I'm like, "I don't know. Do you, do you want a TV?" <laughs> you know, and and he goes, "Yeah, actually, I do." And I go in the back to like look for something, and I call the studio manager. And I go, oh, Kurt, his name is Kurt Cuomo. And I said, Kurt, John is here. And he goes, you got to get out of there, dude. And I was like, I got to get out of there. And I was like, you got to promise me that this is all going to work out. And he said to me, and I'll never forget, he said, Eric, this is all going to work out. And I quit that day. And that was the last time I had a real job. That's that's a great story, man. That's, were you, did you feel 
I don't know, slightly ashamed to be seen in the uniform by your uh, studio colleagues? I did, because I didn't want to insult him, because he was paying me just fine. And so I, I didn't. I just didn't want him to feel like that, you know. And it was a little embarrassing. Not not that that job is embarrassing at all. It's just about like I didn't want anyone to know my age. You know, I didn't want anyone to know that like I wasn't making a lot of money. You know, there's just a certain there's a way you have to kind of show your like your perception is important of how you yes. you know and of how you look and seem and feel and and if it seems like you're struggling somehow your ideas aren't going to be as good and. You know, I ran into that a little bit further along when when people found out my age. I was doing this record. I was the main engineer for this Australian idol. His name is Shannon Knoll. He's actually really, really famous in Australia. Uh, Australians will say Knollsy. They call him Knollsy. He's actually kind of like an internet meme now. But he's an incredible singer and... There was a time where they asked me to go get some beer and I and it's just like I couldn't do it and I had to and normally when that would happen, I would tell the studio owner, he'd go get it, bring it back to me. Like he was a big, big champion of mine, big supporter. So he was down to do that kind of stuff for me. And he, he but he was out of town. And so I had to be like, guys, I can't, I can't uh, get this. Wait, so, so this all happened before you were even 21? This all happened before I was even 21. Okay, wow. And I had to explain to him that I couldn't because I wasn't of age, and there was. And after that, the producer looked at me completely differently. He uh, any any confidence I had, he he immediately flipped that into arrogance and would kind of snap at me. And maybe he was a little threatened. I don't know. I I kind of lost touch with him. I won't even say his name, but he, um, you know, he trusted my ear. He trusted me on even vocal comp takes, like, and all of a sudden it was like, "Are you sure about that? Are you sure about that?" And I was like, "Oh fuck this! Like this sucks," you know. But it comes with the territory. Yeah, I can see why you were wanting to hide your age. Yeah. Wow, I, you know, I've never heard of that happening. Really? Yeah. Well, I've never heard of of one of those types of situations. I've just never heard of it, but I can totally see how it would happen because, yeah. I mean, it's like it's hard to take a 20-year-old seriously sometimes. Absolutely. As, as like a uh, as like an equal in the uh, decision-making like level of a of a project. It's just hard. Absolutely. It's hard to do. Especially when the producer is a guy in his 40s that yeah. did a Bon Jovi record before this one and you know, is is going? Are you sure? And he's listening to me until he wasn't anymore. <laughs> it, well, I mean, now he, looks, now he looks at you like a kid. Yeah, exactly. And it wasn't a peer anymore. Yeah, I mean, I feel bad for you. At the same time, it's like I kind of like I get it uh, from his end. Yes, but I mean, it's not that I. I don't think it's cool, but I totally get it. Yep, and and that was my mentality. Is I understand. I didn't think he was wrong, you know. I I didn't think I was wrong, you know. But it, it was definitely a lesson that some things you have to keep close to your chest. Mm-hmm. And you and you kind of have to figure out it, it along your path what that is because every situation is different. Like my third nipple. Exactly. If, if it ever got out, I don't know. What, Exactly. I don't know. I I cry myself to sleep every single night, but there's only a few people I tell that to. Shit, I just did it on a podcast. Anyway, I cry myself to sleep every night. It's it happens. It happens. And uh <laughs> I tried to 
tattoo a triangle between my nipples so that I could at least do something great with the third one. But uh, now everyone knows. That sounds very Illuminati of you. That's right. Confirmed. (laughs) <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, so what happened next? You, and suddenly, the uh, the dream gig is not so much the dream gig. So, not so much the dream gig. But then I stumbled into my first real moment of of um, what is the word of of validation. It was my first real validating moment. Was I started working? Someone came into the studio, and he was an R and B producer, and I love R and B. I'm absolutely head over heels in love with R&B. It's a passion of mine. It's what I listen to for fun. It's what I try to infuse into rock music. We'll also, clearly we'll get into that at the end of this journey. But, you know, we came in and I was working on some really cool artists and that's when I got the call that Brandy's coming in. And Brandy is easily one of my top five favorite artists of all time. And so that's when I had my first like, oh shit, like you gotta, you gotta bring it. So she comes in and she's wonderful. She's sweet and nice and she's, and she's going to, and I, and you know, she's a veteran. She's been doing it since she was a kid. And so it was going to be interesting because I was maybe a year into this to maybe two years, somewhere in between. And the producer had full trust in me. He thought I was real quick. And so he, you know, he didn't bat. I think he knew my age at this point. And we go through the takes and and she goes quick. She wants to go fast. She wants to blow through it. She was going faster than the computer would even allow at this point. And so (laughs) for me, it was like, it was, you know, sink or swim. And so I, I did it and I moved real, probably the fastest I ever moved on Pro Tools. And she was doing her takes and doing her harmonies. She liked to do everything at once. And we were just blowing through. I literally felt like I think I was sweating because I was moving so quick. And I was nervous. And her bodyguards are right behind me. Like, if I felt like if I looked at her the wrong way, someone's going to backhand me. Like, it was, you know, but there was, <laughs> but there was also, like, partying going on. And, and I think there was Hennessy in the picture at some point. I didn't drink. I was just focused. And she comes in and she says, hey, can I... Eric, Eric, right? And I'm like, yeah. She goes, can I, can I call you E? I'm like, of course. And she's like, yo, I just got to say that, you know, I was at P. Diddy's studio earlier and, and you're like one of the fastest dudes I've ever worked with. <laughs> and my, my, my mouth just went to the floor and the, pro- <laughs> and the producer behind me is jumping up and down. I'm not going to say the, the, the N word, but he was saying, he was jumping around going, that's my, mm, that's my, you guys can fill in the blank. And he's like jumping around. I, I felt like king of the world. Like this was a brand new experience for me. There was nothing like this. <laughs> and, I, and I'm just sitting here going like, Brandy, you're like my, f- like you're, you're the, you're the top for me. Like this is, you know, you just made my life complete. And you know how there's some things I was saying, you have to hold close to your chest. Like this is it. Yeah. This was one of those things I knew I shouldn't say. So I was like, you know, like your voice is amazing. Like you're making it very easy for me, you know? And I just kind of did the a counter gratitude and she's like, yo, E, I got to introduce you to my brother, Ray J. I want you to do his album. Like, blah, they're like, da, da, da. Not like I knew who Ray J was. Like everyone knows this was pre sex tape, by the way. Mm-hmm. And, uh, <laughs> it's not weird that like I have to preface that something is pre-sex tape. What, what kind of world are we in? It helps, man. It helps. It adds. <laughs> it adds context. And so you know that I was E. That was it. Like like I forever. Like 
that changed everything for me because it went from like ho- hoping I knew what I was doing to someone real telling me I knew what I was doing. And there was like no better feeling. And then, you know, after that, it kind of went to uh, some some awesome gigs, some some just like overall, you know, just kind of moving around in the same studio, just different producers and and I even got to work on the Guns N' Roses album for two and a half months. Nice. Uh, let me let me uh, clear that up though. I didn't actually do anything because Axel didn't show up for longer than fifteen minutes one time. Once. Once. <laughs> so. Uh, so what did you do on the Guns N' Roses um, album? The producer downloaded a lot of porn on LimeWire. Um, <laughs> really, after a certain point, I left. So I, I, let's just, let, let's back up. I didn't actually do anything on the Guns N' Roses record, but I was hired to be an assistant engineer on a Guns N' Roses record. I, I'll tell some, you know, just take it for what it is. I didn't actually do anything. And but the coolest because moment, nothing was happening. Nothing was happening. But during this time is when I was the engineer on an Edgar Winter record. I don't know if any of you know who that is, but he had that song, Come On and Take a Free Ride. He had that, and he had some other big songs. He had, I think it was the first number one instrumental, the song called Frankenstein. Look it up. He's a, he's a legend. His brother's Johnny Winter, who's a legendary guitarist. And so yeah. he, he did a record, and I was the engineer, and the studio owner was the producer, and so I got to work on that record during this Guns N' Roses process. Fast forward uh, about a month or two in, and I'm told that Slash wants to come in and play some guitar. And I'm like, oh, here we go, you know? Like, this is Slash. This is 2007 at this point, and I've got... Slash is my hero. And I've got Guns N' Roses in one room and Slash in the other. And you better believe they cannot know about each other. <laughs> so we're freaking out at the studio going like, holy shit, how do we do that? How do we pull this off? What if Axel shows up? Like, are we creating Rock World War Three? Like, what the hell is about to happen? <laughs> so, you know, at this point, it's it's really, really interesting. It's fascinating. I'm scared. I'm excited because Slash is Slash. You know, and... So, so he comes in, you know. Oh, so the guitar tech comes in earlier, and and beats me up a little bit with the tones. He's happy with the tones. You know, he brought in his own gear, like the classic Les Paul he uses, his his Marshall, and everything. And we dial the tones up, and I'm scared. He's gonna be like, "Yo, you're fucking fired. Like, what are you doing?" But he was like, "Cool. This he'll like this." So I'm like, "All right, cool." You know, and and so we're I'm running Pro Tools. And uh, the producer's there, and some other people are there, and and we're just kind of getting in the mode. But every once in a while, I'm gonna run to the other room, and I go, "Everyone okay here? Like, you guys good? Axel's coming. Like, you gotta tell. Give me, please, give me <laughs> half hour notice of Axel's coming." And I didn't say why. And so I go back. He didn't end up showing up that night, so that was fine. And actually, during that moment, there are two things that were really, really interesting during the slash session besides him shredding and me being a little bit starstruck is he goes to light up a cigarette and i tell him he can't in the studio only just because of the gear and i've heard of him kind of being a dick sometimes in the studio and he looks at me he looks away he looks at me and he goes okay and he goes outside and i was like holy shit i just told axel i just told slash that you could not smoke in here like what the fuck's wrong with me i should have let him do it <laughs> and and then he but co- he didn't mind he didn't mind it could have gone bad 
who knows? I'll never know. And then also while we're tracking, we run out of hard drive space. And so I I go into panic mode and I clear some some stuff in between takes. Like I don't even know how I did it looking back on it. But I switched some partitioning like really fast and like no one even really knew what happened. And I just kind of like, I feel like I saved the day, but no one knew. And that's a lot of making records too, is saving the day with knowing what really no one knows or appreciates it. So, you know, there's there's like little victories that you got to take internally. And for me, this was one of them, was making sure that there was no downtime, creating some hard drive space in between slash soloing. And what was it like just as from a fanboy perspective, getting to work with him well it was it was amazing because you really you know and he's just he's his own beast and so it was really cool like we we did 30 takes i think of him just soloing there was no direction it was like just do you like your slash you know and so it was really cool getting to like comp the stuff together and like help create help create the melodies of it by just taking the best of him and and with the producer and Edgar of course and and really crafting that solo into something and it's really cool and so it was a special moment I was really honored to be part of it and and it, it was definitely an experience I'll never forget his tone is just I don't know second to none yeah so so yeah. identifiable absolutely as him. and it's all vintage gear like it, there's nothing new at least when I record him, he could have updated it now, but it's like a 59 Les Paul, I think, and and like a 60s Plexi and a Marshall Cat. You know, it's like you, it's the stuff that a lot of you will never get to understand until you go and rent this gear in LA or something. Like it really, it's hard to explain the difference until you're in front of it. Yeah, for sure. Wow, so that's a milestone. Absolutely, that was, a, heard um, that was a milestone for me, and then <laughs> I just kind of kept going until I until I um, got a call to to interview and audition for, to work for John Feldman. Ah, okay. Yes, and so uh, this was late 2008 at this point, and and at this point I felt very confident with my engineering abilities, and I. I went in and I already was kind of told he auditioned like 30 dudes at this point and I felt ready. And so I even, I came, I came by the studio and I talked to the engineer who was leaving. He gave me some really cool advice and a few tips on like how to get through it. He was really friendly. We're still friends to this day. Shout out to Kyle Mormon if he ever hears this. And, um, well, I've heard that the, uh, the Feldman process is, uh, grueling. Yes. That you you better be ready. Yes. You better better be ready for a twenty four seven three sixty five yeah. adventure. Yeah. Absolutely. That's that's exactly what it is. It's it's boot camp. No matter how prepared I was, it's boot camp. And so I went in. I met with John for a few minutes. He's like, "Cool. Like, show me what you got. Like, edit this entire song, add some production, like, just do your thing to it." And so I, I spend about four hours and I and I make sure it's perfect and I leave and I don't hear anything for a week. So I'm like, well, guess guess he didn't like it. And so I get a text from him or a call. I can't remember which one. And he goes, hey, when are you going to come in and do that and, and audition? And I was like, I did. We met. He was like, oh, we did? Like, shit. Uh, <laughs> Want to come in and do it again? <laughs> I was like, okay. So I actually 
got to do it twice. He never even heard the first one, so I got to take what I did and and I make bet it. You, I bet you that was part of the test. Yeah, I don't even know. I don't think so. I think he just didn't even know I was there, and and so I did it a second time. Which probably helped me. And about a week later, he called me while I was uh, at a show, and he said, "I'd love to offer you the gig. Come in, let's talk." And and it was kind of uh, boot camp from there. And and so that was a big milestone for me because I really, really respected John's energy and and the obviously without goes without saying the records he did. And and what's funny is my favorite album that he did, the one that that made me like a fan of his. Is a record that never even really came out. It was a band called City Sleeps, and it leaked like two years before it actually ended up coming out. And somehow on the Ouch. interwebs, I got my hands on it, and it was the coolest thing I ever heard. To this day, I still think it's the coolest thing he ever did. It was like prog but catchy, and it was it was unbelievably good. And tell us a little bit about what it was like working for him because you know we've had Zach Servini on here and he told us I want to hear it from a different perspective okay working for you know no I was fast I was fast at Pro Tools at this point not according to John I was slow <laughs> and this is at, at this point I'm four years into making music for a living so I felt pretty experienced. I've been through some stuff, you know, like I really, I had some, some records under my belt. I felt good, you know, and, and I felt ready and I came in and I, and I got a, and, and the other engineer, cause at that time he had two engineers and he came down and he said, Hey, John told me to come down and help you with some shortcuts. Cause he thinks you're slow. I'm just like, uh, <laughs> like, okay. And he goes, hey, here's the shortcuts. I'm like, yeah, I know all these. I know every, like, I, I got it. And he's like, okay, cool. See ya. <laughs> and just kind of left. And, you know, <laughs> and, and at that point, that's when it was like, all right, time to be faster. So I was like lightning fast and extremely detail oriented. And working for, working for John is very interesting. It, it, what it teaches you is a lot of self pride. Because if you had 78 things you were supposed to do and 77 of them are nailed and one thing wasn't done right, he, the only thing he was going to let you know is that the one thing wasn't done right. And so at first you're just like, well, I fucking suck. I'm not even really sure why he has me here. And then, but, it, but it actually teaches you to just like lick your own wounds and know that like, you know what? Like this is good. I don't care what anybody says. This is good. And, and that's a really valuable lesson moving up because there's so many times, especially with touring musicians and things where like you'll send a song that you're so proud of and like you won't hear back. And then you start to get this crippling self-doubt. Like, do they hate it? Do they this? Like, like I don't do that shit. It's like, you know, if you like something, you're going to tell me. If not, I'm just going to assume like, you know, I'm proud of what I did. I can hang my head on it. You know, I can hang my hat on it. Sorry. So it's like. And there's also people who don't say anything when they're happy. They only say something when something needs to be fixed. Exactly. And so I, I try to do that with my guys. You know, I tried to take some of those lessons and apply it to, to my bands and apply them to people who work for me or intern for me. Is like I try to at least, if something's awesome, I really try to let them know that they killed it, you know, and and that's something I learned from that experience, you know, and, and it's not like he did anything wrong. It's his way. I was working for him, you know? Mm -hmm. And what kind of tasks did he have you do? I mean, it was everything from production to editing to, um, you know, it was a lot of editing and sometimes you'd, you'd come up with parts and, you know, it was, 
it was putting me in a in a driver's seat with artists that um, wouldn't have given a shit about me otherwise. So I'm I'll be forever grateful for that opportunity. I see. And uh, did you get any time off? No. It was every single day, right? Twelve hours a day, seven days a week. So it was eighty-four hours, and that's not a joke. Like it was like that's what you were expected to do. Other engineers before me actually said that I had it easy. Some people were there 15 hours a day, 18 hours a day. Like, they'd laugh at me and be like, oh, man, you got it easy. You don't even have to go do runs. You don't have to go to Pinkberry. Like, oh, man, like you got it easy, dude. I'm just like, okay. Oh, yeah, because I heard that he sometimes would have the assistants go pick up, like, go pick up his son from soccer practice or, like, oh, go yeah. pick up Pinkberry for, for everyone. Yep, and... and that's you're just when you when you work for him you're just part of the family you know like you're 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 babysitting sometimes if you're if you have no work to do you're babysitting it was like that you know and and keep in mind this is from 2000 like late 2008 to 2010 mm-hmm. and so the kid his kids were very young and these kids are adorable they're they're i mean the whole, you know the whole family is amazing and and so it's really it's not a bad situation it's not a bad thing to get to hang out with his kids sometimes yeah Exactly. And actually, it seems like that would be a nice break from audio if his family's cool. Yeah, it was. And he ha- and this is when his house was in uh, Bel Air. And so his house was amazing on the hill. And there was a pool. You know, it was like it had a good view, had good vibes. And so, you know, it really kind of taught me about where you can go, too, and how to interact with industry people. And, you know, and, and I just... I, I took all the information and I and I soaked it in like a sponge. And every every meeting I overheard or everything, I just soaked it in. And it's people I keep in touch with to this day. So how? So first of all, I'm blown away by your history. I didn't realize how deep and rich of a history you have, um, and how multifaceted it is. Um, and I think that a lot of people don't know. I think you were totally right when you said that we're going to talk about stuff that people didn't know you did. Yeah, and I'm, I'm um, only scratching the surface. I'm, I, this is a condensed story. What, one day there'll be an autobiography about, you know, <laughs> how to, you know oh, for the record, uh, every, you know, and all my clients know this. All I want is to be uh, a producer with an English accent because everything is so much more intense. Man, man. I got to tell you that, like, whenever we have someone with a British accent on Nail the Mix, it just seems so much more correct. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so much, like, whatever they're saying, it's like, it could be wrong, but it's not because it's a British accent. Yeah, yeah. If you say, you know, um, if you ask me, like, Eric, what's what's your favorite... Um Guitar, and I'll say, you know, I got this this guitar I got in 2004, and I, you know, I I did a custom color on it, and it's my favorite. It's like, oh, cool. From like, you know, I got this this guitar from 2004. It's custom. <laughs> it, like, you're like, oh my god, this guy's got a story. Yeah, <laughs> like that's it not just... the best example. I have better examples, but you know, we're we're yoloing. It's a podcast, it, dude. But still, it's that's the British accent goes a long way so. <laughs> it really does yeah and um so you know I, I i am a true a true spokesperson of working your way up and i have so many stories and and i learned so many things from people not only of what to do but what not to do i think i learned more about what not to do than what to do 
Well, let's talk a little bit. Let's take a break from your history and talk a little bit about what not to do. Oh, man. Do I got to do that? That's like... I'm gonna be. I don't want to put people on blast, do I? They're gonna are, uh, if they hear this thing. I'm like, yo, why'd you say that, bro? Well, don't don't no naming names. Oh, cool. Okay. Uh, just like one one big mistake that um that you think an upcoming engineer should avoid. Ooh. Um. No no naming names. You know, I think it has to do with the the interaction with your artist, and I think if you. You have to make sure to create a vibe that's comfortable. And I've seen situations where the artist is miserable and the producer just doesn't really care. And and I've seen that. I've seen just just ways to just ways to make a vibe better or worse. And so Anyone that's really recorded with me knows that the environment I create is is a place where you can let it all out. Like I, I'm not just a producer; I'm a therapist, and and I know everything about you when you leave. Like I think people are probably nervous. I'll tell all their secrets, but I know everyone's secrets. If you want some dirt on someone, hit up your boy. I mean, I won't say it ever because I'm <laughs> trustworthy. But th- you know, that's um, that's something. Client, patient, confidentiality. Yeah, you know, and and. I know people's sexual uh, fetishes versus like what they really feel about the people that they live and work with and you know and, and all that stuff and I get to take it in and I'm gonna uh, use it as leverage to really like screw people over later. Just kidding, <laughs> just kidding. Don't do that. So well, it's interesting that I, I said, okay, so what's one thing that people shouldn't do? And the first thing you went to is Involving client relations, and that's interesting because we always tell people, both here on the podcast and on Nail the Mix, that your engineering skills should be assumed. It should be assumed that you're good if you're going for it, especially in a city like LA or Nashville or whatever. It should be assumed that you're good at audio, but in addition to that, you really need to know how to read a room and how to talk to people and how to get along with people and make friends and understand when to shut up, when to speak, and how to read between the lines. Like, you really have to have good social skills. You really do, and you can be that kind of quiet, awkward producer, and that, and that totally works for some people. I know I know quite a few that, that are very successful and they're great people, they're just not very social and they don't really leave you know they don't really like to get out and i've always i've always kind of tried to be the guy that's at all these parties and at these social events cuz i really i, I wanted to just meet people you know when i left john feldman's you know when when i left that situation no one gave a fuck about me i thought maybe i could kind of pick up and you know take it and no one cared everyone has like their four producers they work with no one gave a shit on my skills like it was like well these are our guys. And so for me, it was about creating relationships with the labels, meeting everyone I, c- I could, just listening to them because I didn't have anything to talk about. So I just listened. And I, that's advice I give. It's like if you if you open up your personality to, to be someone that people can confide in, you're going to get a lot farther along. And so when I was starting out, I just listened to people and people would tell me things that I shouldn't have known. Even now, people tell me things that I really don't want to know. 
but it's just something that uh, that I've put out in the in the universe that that you can and should do with me. That makes sense. So, all right, you left John Feldman, and like you said, nobody gave a shit. No one gave a shit. They're like, oh, cool, you worked on some awesome records. Awesome, we'll see what happens, you know? And so my mentality was, well, no one's going to give me a shot, so I got to find a band and blow them up. That's the only way that people are going to care. And so what I did was I worked with a lot of developing acts that really just wanted to work with some real guys. And Well, where, first of all? Where did you oh, work with I them? Oh, I scoured. Oh, so I, I um, oh, let me tell you guys about Shitbox Studios 1.0, a.k.a. me building, <laughs> building a studio uh, in a rehearsal room that my band used to practice in. And so it was carpeted around the whole thing. So at least it was a place I could make noise 24 hours. I could track real drums, real guitars, and I could do that whole thing. And so my mentality was get them to, get them to not pay attention to the room. Just focus on the quality of work. You know, just do the major label work you've been doing the last two years on these development bands. And so I wanted to create, you know, I wanted to work with the used so I took a band, and I made them sound like the used, because I can't work with the used, but I'm going to do my best to like <laughs> create something, you know? It was like taking a bad band and making them good, and then taking a good band and making them great, and making a great band and helping them be amazing. And so that's always the mentality, was like, I'm going to create the product I want, even though it's not with an artist that that necessarily is there right away. But that's okay, because I started to make a name for myself in the development world. You know, and if so, if there was something I liked about the band, I wanted to work on it, and I wanted to see what I could do with it, and then I could, you know, shop it around to anyone who gave a shit. You know, I was that guy. Sent, you know, Facebook was kind of newer. It was still MySpace at this time, and this was like late 2009, early 2010, and I was finding bands on MySpace that I thought sounded cool. This was the last of the MySpace days, guys. Like you guys yeah. don't know how good we had it. Like we could find bands fucking easy it was like going through thousands of bands through via top 32s and top eights and whatever it was like i would just go through the list until people wanted to record with me and i was charging next to nothing and i just wanted to create something big i just wanted to be busy i would have rather been busy than waiting for the right for what i felt like my my quality of work was worth it was like start you know it was like building blocks like start with a band do the best you can do with them and then and then show anyone who's willing to listen. Yep. And so eventually I did that for about a year and I was even starting to work with some bands from that weren't from you know California and people were flying in and flying in from France and all kinds of cool stuff. It nice. was just kind of like getting out there and um, you know eventually I stumbled on a band that I really wanted to work with called I the Mighty. And that's the first time that I was like, guys, like I want to do a production deal because they didn't have the money to to record with me for what I wanted to charge. Uh, but I believed in it. There was something about it. I, I felt like I could benefit, like uh, they could benefit from working with me. And so I did a production deal that was like, hey guys, like I'm going to hustle this. I'm going to help shop it. I'm going to do whatever. And if it gets signed, like you just got to do your record with me. And that's really the first time I did that. And then within a very short amount of time, 
they signed to Equal Vision Records. I was like, holy shit, here we go. Here's the yes. uh, here's the big time. You know, I'm ready. Like, let's go. Here comes these hundred fifty thousand dollar budgets. Let's go. Like, I was still <laughs> I was still a little bit delusional. And then I got the budget, and I thought there was something. I thought there were some zeros missing. I, I was uh, I was not ready for this, <laughs> you know. And and even though I even though I thought I made it, it was like two steps forward, and then like I think I could have charged. I think I would have made more money just not like just just charging a regular. But like it, that's not what it was about. It was about visibility, exposure, and and just showing people what I could do and helping this band. I gotta tell you, man, that. Um Back when I was doing this full time, I think that there were time periods where my biggest budgets came from unsigned bands. Totally, totally. Yeah. And and so, so guys listening, guys listening, don't don't uh, don't don't think that there's anything wrong with doing locals. Sometimes, if you get the right ones, you'll get paid better than on a label project. Absolutely, this is true, and and. You know, while I was kind of getting, that was like my first foot into the, you know, Eric Ron, the producer, not not someone's engineer. This was the first time I was like, all right, this is your baby. And so I gave it everything I had. And, you know, the band's doing wonderful. I ended up doing their first EP and their, and their first full length under Equal Vision. It helped create a, a relationship with Equal Vision that kind of ended up with me writing with Set It Off. And and now I'm fast forwarding to about late 2011, early 2012, and so this is the first time they started kind of doing songwriting for signed bands. Because every band that I was doing like local stuff with, and I call it development, because really that's what it is. It, it's like a if you say money gig or local band, like you're kind of a dick. Like like I call it development. Fair enough. Because that uh, that's essentially your goal, right? Is you're developing something that is yeah. that is small in hopes to make it bigger. So let's call it development. Yeah. And okay. So I was doing. I was writing with a lot of these developing acts, and I I really felt strong about it, and a lot of people really liked what I was bringing to the table, and so it kind of got to the point where I was doing that with sign bands, and I remember set it off as one of the first ones. That you know, they already picked their producer and everything, and so they're in LA. They just want to do some songwriting, and so Equal Vision linked us together, and and the song, one of the songs we did, ended up being one of their bigger singles, and uh, it was really a good a good first step for me into like, okay, like I want to be everything. I want to help write songs. I want to help craft it. I want to help shape it. I want to just make make the product as as big as it can be. And Let's talk about how those ended up going for you. Uh, which ones? Any of these development deals? Well, the so the first <laughs> so the first production deal I ever did ended up being successful. It ended up being very beneficial, and you know the band is well on their way, and you know we still keep in touch to this day. And the second one I did did not go so well. It was a band called Modern American Theater. It was like a, it was like a minus the bear meets Paramore, and I was like, this is going to be so sick, and it came out, came out well. But the band just couldn't keep it together. They broke up, you know. And I have a few of those stories going, going up to that. And so we had one big victory in the beginning, and then a few losses, you know. And and um, it's just part of the territory. And and then it started getting to a point where I helped develop an act 
actually two acts in a row. My next two ended up signing with major labels. And I won't, I won't name them, but I end, actually ended up getting fucked out of both of those albums. Uh, one, one had ironclad paperwork and one didn't. And it was uh, I, my next kind of like steps forward and, and a few steps back, which is like, there's always someone who has someone else's best interests in mind. And yes, you know, for sure. And so, you know, I could get into the negative aspects of, of, building and growing but like no one wants to hear that you guys don't want to hear that shit you guys want to hear the positive stuff and you know and and both exist and but i think the positive stuff is what needs to keep you driven and and yeah and well with the negative stuff what's good to hear are the lessons you learned like for instance have ironclad paperwork ironclad paperwork and if and even if that doesn't work it's about you know a relationship with your artists knowing that like guys like i know you know, because everyone says, oh, Eric, we would never do what such and such did to you. And then you go and then I go, OK, like, let's see about that. Sure enough, you know, the same thing happens and they go, well, I don't know what you want me to do. You know, my hands are tied and you go, OK, just, you know, just remember that time you're like, I'd never do that to you. And here, here it goes, you know. And so really, you have to take you have to take things into perspective and really establish your relationship. Also, knowing that, like. An artist is going to do what's best for them. So you have to do what's best for you. And But I like to do what's best for the artist, too. And I learned the hard way how you can get burned. But I, I, but I never wanted to let it affect my relationships with artists, you know? And that's really, really smart because you never know. You never know what's going to come up down the road. Exactly. And, and you know, it's some, and it's nice to know with some of these artists where they're like, you know, we made a huge mistake. We should have done it with you, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, it's really nice to hear. But at the end of the day, like, this is a business. The You know, the bigger the label, the the tougher the, the interests become and people's mortgages are on the line. And it's like, you know, the, the pressure gets bigger and you have to, you know... I have a, you know, I'm a producer that has a big chip on my shoulder because I've, you know, as many victories as I've had, I've had losses too. And I, I try to, I try to take it with me as long, as long as it doesn't knock me over. And I have this chip on my shoulder and I have this edge about me and this passion. And I, and I really try not to let anyone fuck with that because it's just life gets in the way. It certainly does. I, I, and I really, really admire your, your mentality of, trying to stick to the positive and keeping relationships good despite business getting in the way of that. Absolutely. And I and you know and I can't take sole credit for that too. I have an amazing team. I have two managers uh, by the name of Daniel Rubin and Seth Cummings and and you know I can really confide in them when I have, you know, a case of the fuckets and I'm like, "You know what? Let's let's burn this bridge." And they're just like, "No, no, Eric, like come on." You know, like like as level-headed as I feel I am, like I am an emotional person. I am and uh, I'm still a, human. I'm a songwriter, I'm an artist. Like I have like sometimes I I want to say some things I regret and I, you know, I can, my mentality has always been lead by example. And so I, I've always like, I don't start beef with anyone on the internet. I don't, you know, like I keep my nose clean and I just try to maintain my relationships. But every once in a while, you know, you get tested and, and, and I really have to thank Daniel and Seth for, for helping me stick to the plan. Yeah. Yeah. Don't give in. Don't give in to those, uh, those base instincts to just 
fly off the handle and fuck it. Yeah, and you know, I never really look at YouTube comments, but every once in a while I'll catch one that's like, this song's good, mix sucks, and I'm just like, oh, okay, oh, what do I do? I, I never respond, I walk away, but... Um, you know, I think I think any producer that's listening to this has been like, oh, man, I kind of wanted to let that guy have it. And some people do. There's the, I do know a few producers who just can't let it go. It's hard, man, because I don't know. There's a certain way that these comments sting because they're not right in front of you. So you can't. I think it's the feeling of powerlessness to do anything about it when they're so off the mark. Yeah. So I totally understand. And some of them are just downright savage. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, they are. They are. I mean, yeah, they, they're hurtful. Uh, I think it's best to try not to read those. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I think it's best. I've got one guy... I'm pretty sure it's the same guy, but I feel like everything that's ever been put out under my name, there's a comment that says vocals are too loud. <laughs> and it just makes me laugh. And like one time... I thought to myself, you know what, maybe the vocals are too loud. I'm, and then I kind of woke up and went, fuck that. Like, all my training, everything I've been through, like, that's that's my number one priority is the vocals. So if you, you know, it, if you're probably not a singer and that's it, and, like, I get that. And, like, I, I joke about it with some people. Like, oh, yeah, this this mix is going to be vocal down because that guy on YouTube says my vocals are too loud. <laughs> that guy on YouTube. You know, and so that's that. That's the least of my concerns, though. It's you know, everyone's entitled to their opinion. Music is so subjective, and so there really is like no correct way to do it. There's some incorrect ways to do things, but it's so subjective, you know. Yeah, uh, but still, it's there's a reason for why some celebrities will say that they never, ever read their own twitters or look at comments on YouTube or whatever because. They want to have a good day. And, uh, <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and they're, you know, and they're just people too with feelings, and you know, the, they'll get their feelings hurt, and it'll ruin their day. Yeah, for sure. But you know what? There's there's some really good stories too. Like for instance, there's a band that came in with me in 2013, right after I built my my studio in North Hollywood here. After so I graduated from Shipbox 1 into Shipbox 2, then I then I built a real studio. And that's where I am currently doing this wonderful podcast in. And you're in Shipbox 2? No, no. This this is just Gray Area Studios now. This this is oh, okay. this is not Shipbox. <laughs> and you know, really what there was a band that came in and let's call it a development gig. Let's call it that. But I I liked the singer's voice. And, you know, as soon as they came in and we started pre-pro and I heard the singer sing in front of my mic chain, in front of my speakers, the hair stood up on my arms and I went, guys, everyone come in. And I sat him down and I said, we have a lot more than just doing a few songs here. Like, we have to, we have to delve into this more. And so I ended up developing it. I ended up helping them get their manager, which is actually also my manager. And because their favorite bands were I the Mighty and Hands Like Houses, who he both managed and I both worked. It was just like this perfect storm. And the band that they're, they're called Too Close to Touch, and they're actually in the studio with me now. 
uh, that's that's the record I'm currently working on, and so you know it's a it's a really nice story to help get something signed and and help create a bidding war. And I rehearsed them, and I and I made them cry because the the rehearsal was so fucking bad. And I and I made them <laughs> come into the studio and fix fix it, and I wouldn't let them leave until they learned their parts. And you know it was like. You know, they call me dad, and and you know, <laughs> and it, and I really do feel like that with them. Is um, I've been a part of of all their records, and and you know, helping write the songs with them and shaping the sound, and that's really one of the most special parts of what I like to do, which is really feeling like a team member, not just a guy who does a record and we don't keep in touch. Like we become family. Like when you come to L.A., like if you don't come here and party with me, like we got a fucking problem. That close. And so I, I like to keep, you know, and my studio is called Gray Area Studios, and and I like to keep, you know, keep in touch with everyone. And my bands tour together, and I really try to create a culture that's more than just the daily job that you have, you know, and and sometimes. You know the downside is if there there is some kind of difference or falling out, like it sucks because you lose a family member. But that's the risk that I'm personally willing to take because I'm so passionate about what I do and and the art that I want to help create and put into this world. That to me it's worth it, you know. And and I did the same thing, you know, with a few bands, including one that I'm really really proud of called Siler, which is really a record that a lot of people talk to me about, and it's it's really been kind of a a genre-defining album because we wanted to to combine urban and hard rock into this kind of like Drake meets Slipknot thing, and and it's not quite Slipknot, but those are the extreme, and it's not quite Drake. It's the extremes we wanted to go, and so you know that's really been the mentality for me. Is create is not just making a record, but making a product that nine months down the road we call each other and we're like, I still get chills to this day. So let's talk a little bit about. How you actually go about creating this family vibe at your studio? Sure, it usually involves whiskey and uh, teasing my dog, <laughs> and teasing my dog by making him drink all the whiskey. Just kidding! Oh, I would never do that. <laughs> I would never do that. Um, but I think as soon as they come in, you know, it's it's funny. The the band I'm in with right now, too close to touch. They like to. Um, they like to remind me about the first time they met me in person is I said, well, let's get this out of the way. And I went down on my knees and I yelled into one of the band members crotches. I yelled their name. I call it a dick yell. <laughs> and, and this actually started from Lou, the singer of Palisades. He did it to me once and we just like called it the dick yell after that. And, you know, it uh, that's the Where's first thing. Dick yell? Yeah, you never go big yell. Ah, it's there somewhere. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry in advance, everyone. But, you know, and, and it was like breaking the ice. And I think we had a shot immediately after. And it was like, let's get to work. And our automatically, like, all their nerves just kind of, like, loosened up. And, you know, I recommend every producer to have a studio dog. Not every dog's meant to be in the studio. But I'll tell you, it, it's a very good icebreaker to kind of two strangers coming in supposed to, like, create this next big thing. You know, it's like, it's a pretty uncomfortable situation if you're not used to it. It's kind of like having a bunch of first dates, but like you have to have a child right away, you know? (laughs) That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And so you pet a furry dog, you have a little shot, you know, that's kind of how my first dates go too. So, you know. Including with the dick yell. (laughs) Including the, I yell into their dicks, into the lady, the lady dicks. (laughs) I I concur about the studio dog. I have one, and uh, 
the bands love her. Yeah, it really it really softens up even the toughest assholes. Yeah. Except except one label prick that came in recently who shushed my dog away. I kind of wanted to uh, crack a like a, a frying pan over his head. Yeah. But you know he, what? He, he'll he'll get his <laughs> he'll get his one day. He. Man, you know what? People who don't like dogs weird me out. Weird, like, you can be a cat person, but if you specifically don't like dogs... And I gotta say, it's maybe happened twice in the hundreds and hundreds of people that have been into the studio. Like, most people melt as soon as they see my dog. It's usually with, like, this sound. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> and so... But, like, the, the <laughs> yeah. ones who actually don't like them. It's like, what? what is wrong with you? How do you not like them? Yeah. I, I totally agree. And so it starts with that, and then we get down to the nitty-gritty, you know? We get down to to what what my vision is versus your vision, and, and we hope to match our visions. That's the goal, right? It's like, hey, like, I know you guys do this sound. Like, kind of what I hear is it going a little bit like this. And then someone's like, that. I mean, we've typically if we're making an album or something, we've we've already kind of had this conversation. You know, because if they're like, no, no, I wouldn't do that at all. Then like, what's the, what are we doing here? You know. So it's it's kind of a, a combination of breaking the ice and just starting to line up the vision. Because I think you have to kind of know where you want to go. Absolutely. And then over time, how do you keep the vibe consistent? Because you know, once you're in the the guts of making an album, there's always the tendency to maybe have everything become routine or for things to get stressful or, you know, any number of things. Definitely. How, how do you keep it family vibe and cool the whole way? Well, I think I think it's important to create an environment where you can be open and honest and also create, you know, really get their trust. Because if they don't trust your opinion, it's, it's doomed to fail. And so, how do you suggest doing that? Um, boy, you know... That that honestly is a little bit more instinctual than I can pinpoint into something. You know, it's like, I just, maybe it's my tone of voice, maybe it's the passion I have when I say it, but it's like I give an opinion and, and people have been pretty keen to it. You know, and eventually, it doesn't always happen, but it's I think it's about giving some advice that's that someone wants to hear and, and that someone is in a position to hear. You know, I co-wrote with a band that's just, and I, I blame management, but they just weren't ready to write with anyone. I, it was like the the singer was actually offended that I even had an idea. You're just like, what are you doing? I write the lyrics. I'm just like, well, you're here to co-write. And they're just like, well, I got it. It's fine. It was like, oh, okay. Was what? Like, we had a big way. <laughs> and what's funny is him and I have actually written a lot of songs since. They just they just didn't know what to expect. And he's a dear friend of mine. Um, the band is called The Color Morale. And he, we, it's so funny, the next record, he spent so much time apologizing about it. I'm like, dude, it's totally fine. Like, oh, so, the color morale. I, that, that, I know that kid from the internet. Yeah, Garrett. Yeah. Yeah, and, he, and he's a dear friend of mine. And so I don't want anyone to perceive that as trash talking. It's just uh, a situation where he wasn't prepared. And, and, you know, I think they just weren't ready to do that. And that, and that's, and that happens. And, and so, you know, but I learned from that to, like, explain to try to have that conversation early like hey guys like this is what to expect you know otherwise you're not ready and let, let's do it another time or let's not do it at all and so you know but we ended up writing four songs together on their next record and and you know and I love those guys and, and I think 
setting up the the chance to actually be heard is is very important. I completely agree. So, how does this lead to bands like Attila and stuff? How like the how does this all lead to the Eric Ron that people now know about? So, working with with you know the signed bands, it was really about the 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 relationships I had with other bands, touring with bands, and talking about their experiences. Because I've heard there's been a bunch of horror stories, and not Attila specifically at all. Just in general, I think I think I hear a lot about bad recording experiences, and I take every one of those conversations. And, and I learned something from it. And I try to, to not do that the most I can, you know? And so when I worked with Attila, it was, you know, and for the record, I said no to Attila at first because I'm a, I'm a melody guy. And if there's no singing, like, I don't really know where I fit in. And, and you know, it, was, it wasn't, like, I just didn't feel like I was the best guy for this album. And then it was funny, I was working with Tyler Carter at the time, who, you know, couldn't be more opposite. We were working on some R&B stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, hey, you know what? I just kind of like got offered and I said no, it was the Attila record. And he literally turned to me and said, why? You should totally do that. And I was like, what? Like, I just didn't expect that from him. And he was like, dude, they're the best dudes. Like, you're going to love it. Like, just do it. And it like got me thinking, like, oh fuck, did I just make a mistake? And so I talked to my management about, they're like, no, you should totally do it. Like, at least have a conversation. And so I I got on the phone with Franz, and it totally made sense for where they wanted to go to have me involved in it. And so I, I was like, you know what? Let's fucking do this. Like, I'm ready. I'm ready. And so that's kind of where it. And they were they were really really excited by the Siler stuff that I did. And so that's kind of what got me, you know, and Jaden, the singer of Siler, you know, he filled in for Attila on a tour because Franz was having a kid. And so that really, um, that, that had to have helped. And so it's really, you know, once you start working with bands, it's really word of mouth. I don't, I don't advertise. I don't sponsor posts. I don't put out ads. Like my whole, you don't, can't really even find much about me on the internet, all I put is what I've done because that's really all that matters. Yeah, I I kind of agree. Once you're at a certain point, for sure. You know, and and so I think doing doing like you know the icy stars and the Attilas and the issues is really just about someone really really just backing you and being like, dude, you guys got to try Eric. Like this this guy knows what's happening. And and this is like 15 years in the making too totally this is not an overnight thing you know i've heard a, f- a few people say like man i just keep hearing this guy he came out of nowhere and i'm just laughing like bro like look at like if this is nowhere i don't want to i don't really want to know well it's funny because i only heard about you in the past year and i didn't know anything about you i just knew that you were doing these bands and was like okay so i guess eric ron is the new kid on the scene but i didn't know your history and i didn't realize until now just how deep your history goes <laughs> so yeah. it's it lends a lot more credibility to what you're doing and you're not just the new kid on the scene this is long time in the making like you worked your way step by step to what you're doing right now I did and and you know what I did it one piece of gear at a time you know one album and I just I'm really bad 
at everything in life except this. You know, this is the only thing that makes sense to me. I can't, I can't, you know, I can't paint. I can't hang a TV on a wall. I can't, you know, I can't do many, many things that I wish I could do. But the one thing that makes sense to me is music and even just the music business. I I try to, you know, I think another thing that separates me a little bit from other producers is I know the marketing side. I know the legal terms. I know there's a lot of producers who probably can't even tell you what a mechanical royalty is. And I just tried to just be educated because I, I had a lawyer early on who it was actually Incubus's lawyer, and he just he just flat out would be like, you're an idiot. Why, why do you even think that? Like, he just made me feel so dumb. So shout out to Todd Cooper for uh, making me feel like I need to get educated because then I did. <laughs> and I feel like that really helps me because I like create a product that I actually... I know what happens to it. I know the channels. I know the people it goes through. I, I actually know what it takes to to get it there. And so I, I, I that's the part I'm the most proud of, too. It's not just making it. It's about how you can help after, if, if there's any role for you. Well, I mean, you know the industry that you work in. Exactly. Not just your, not just your job in it. Exactly. I mean, you know, and I'm lucky enough, like, I take a meeting with Kevin Lyman, who's the owner of Warp Tour, you know, I take a meeting with them every year and I get to tell them about bands that, that I worked on, bands that I'm really excited about. And, and I feel like it's a rare relationship that I really cherish. And it's just something, you know, and it's just good to know what's happening out there because I can I can help map things. And, you know, and I don't sit back and wait for, for bands to hit me up. Like if I want something, I go out and I check it out. And I, you know, my management, they, we, we you know, back before things kind of, were really working in my favor. It was like we had spreadsheets of bands that I wanted to approach and reach out to. I couldn't tell you how many times I wanted, reached out wanting to do an Issues record. Like I really felt like that was the one album. When that first record came out, it was like I'm meant to be involved in this because it's R&B, it's pop, it's rock, it's it's back of the beat. It's every, like I feel like I can really help do something with this, you know, and it... And it I got a lot of unanswered emails about it first, you know, and then when it actually came to happen, it was like really, really special to me. And, and now we're dear friends and I hope I hope we get to work on more issues material together. I mean, that would be amazing. And if it doesn't, I'm super proud of what we did. How long, just out of curiosity, how long did you try and get rejected for? I've been I've been rejected on a lot of records that I that I reached out for. But is, issues, I mean, it was probably a uh a year, a year and a half process of just kind of like, you know, talking, putting it out there with Rise, putting it out there with management. You know, I even, I wanted to work with the band. So I worked with another artist that the manager had because I just wanted to be in the circle. And so, you know, and, and so it's really about taking it step by step and wanting to be in front of the artists that I really were passionate about because I want to do music I love. If you if you don't do music you love, you shouldn't do it. I, I completely agree. And I think it's... Uh, one thing, I want to take a second to define the difference between being persistent and being uh, an annoying punisher. Oh, yes. Because, well, because I've also done the same things where I've remained persistent on certain things and been turned down, pinned, turned down, no, now's not a good time, not a good time, until finally it came through, and it was great. But I've seen a lot of other people screw it up by 
being over persistent and uh, basically losing any chance of getting the gig ever. So I feel like there's a fine line. Totally. There, there's definitely that line. Sometimes you're not the one that draws it. I think it's someone else who makes up their mind, whether you're a punisher or you're just persistent. You know, there's a band. I won't mention the band, but I've been wanting to work with them since they were fairly small and they went very big, very quickly. And, you know, I don't think the manager likes me very much. I think that they consider me a punisher where other other moments you know it's just persistent and waiting it out and and just like trying to show people that that you're doing stuff and and now now you know i think it would be pretty hard for them not to notice but you you never know there's you know there's people i really want to work with that have no idea i exist and you know the, actually you know because i have a publishing deal for those who don't know what a publishing deal is is that i'm a songwriter and and i write songs to go on albums and and there's someone who helps kind of administer that and set it up, and that's what a publishing deal is. And so I also want to delve into writing pop music, and no matter what I do in the rock world, pop doesn't give a shit. They don't care if you sold 200,000 records. Like, that sounds amazing, but if they don't know who the artist is, they don't care. They don't know what emotionless and white is. They don't care. Mm-hmm. And so it's like uh, I'm speaking a different language, you know? And so. Well, it's a different world. It's a totally different world. And so. All I can do is hope to get in the room and change people's minds. And so, you know, I, I like to be persistent about that. Like, I'm here. Like, let's do some work, you know. You could say you won't regret it, but, like, eventually you got to sit back and let someone make up their mind. Yeah, I completely agree. But I think early on I would consider myself incredibly persistent, borderline punishing. And I'm sure there was someone who's listening to this who would be like, oh, yeah, I remember those days where I, you know, where I wanted to just get my name out there and... And you, you got to do it and you just try to try to put yourself in the other person's shoes to know if you're going a little too far. Yeah, I guess that I would one thing I would do was I would allow enough space, enough time in between uh, communications so that it wouldn't appear like I was freaking out or something. Totally. Or like. So I would at least allow 10 days, for instance. Totally. And, you know, I actually, I have some advice for bands, too. Because what happens is a lot of bands hit me up on Facebook Messenger, which is, like, not the most ideal way to do it. And they'll just kind of say, hey, how much? And I'm like, hello, how much for what? <laughs> They're like, this, this, or that. And I go, okay, well, the pro- you know, the proper channel is when I email my manager at this, we'll get it going, you know, see if it works out. And... They'll email them and kind of say, hey, we want to work with Eric. How much? And they'll be like, well, what's your project? What are you doing? What's the, you know, and then they don't respond after that. It's like people don't really have a game plan after the initial contact. And so if there's bands who are looking to record with producers you admire or whoever it may be, have a plan. Like, let people know what you're doing and don't email them every three days because some people also, like, follow up with me every three days and it's like... Uh, sometimes you gotta find the balance between taking a hint and being persistent. And so, trust me, it happens to me too. And there's someone I want to work with. You know, there was a girl. Actually, this is a pretty funny story. There's a girl who does YouTube covers of bands that I've produced and songs I've written, and her voice is so amazing. It's incredible. I've hit her up. I don't know, twenty times over the last six years, and she just doesn't want to work with me. 
She just doesn't want to... I even offered to fly her out here, work on some stuff, and she just gives me the cold shoulder. And I'm just like, are you kidding? Like, Has she ever responded? Yeah, she has responded. And like a very, like, leave me the fuck alone. I'm, I'm good. And it like blows my mind. But, you know, it just, it is what it is. It's, you know, it, you can't take it personal or, you know, you could bury your head in the sand and not recover. But like... You know, it, it, it is what it is. She's just not feeling the run. She is not interested in doing originals with me. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> Best of luck to her. I got no bad blood. I, you know, I'm still waiting for the day. She goes, you know what? Let's fucking try it. And I'm like, nah, not interested anymore. <laughs> just <laughs> kidding. I, I, try not to, I try not to be too spiteful with stuff like that. Because it does happen where like so you get turned down and they come back. And you're like, huh, I'm going to enjoy this one. Yeah, I mean... I've definitely experienced that, too. So, Eric, we have some questions from our audience for you. Oh, awesome. Okay. Here's the first one from Ashley Maciel, which is, how do you approach writing music with bands like Set It Off? They're one of my favorite bands, but I try to write a song like their style without heavy guitar riffs and all that, and I fail miserably. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Well, I bet you it's not as bad as you think it is. You're probably being your own worst critic, but I mean, when you, I think a song in general, for me, it's always about the, the vocal melody first. A lot of times, you know, I can't tell you how many songs I've written in my shower, just from like kind of thinking of a melody, I don't have to run out and do a voice memo and come back in and my entire floor is soaked and, and I might have slipped and cracked my head open, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's the secret to it is cracking, no, please don't do that. But, um, you know, I think it's about the melody first and then you you kind of weigh the production because we'll, we'll write a song that has no guitar in it, but we'll, we'll do it on acoustic first. You know, because if it doesn't live naked and bare on its own strong, it's, you know, you're just kind of polishing a turd. <laughs> and so, you know, I think with with writing stuff that isn't necessarily heavy, it really shouldn't be that big of a difference. I think you just have to find the elements that wrap around your melody the best. All right. Here's one from Eric Flamflop Howell, which is, what are some tips for fitting electronic and hip-hop elements into heavy songs like Silar and Issues? I think the, the balance is because those, those hip-hop samples are just, they sound so crisp and clear and hot and pumpy. And it's like just really, sometimes you have to take away a little bit of the low end on those so that so your rock stuff doesn't sound all pussy. You know, and it's, it's definitely something that can happen if you're not careful and so i try to i try to make the electronics quieter first and and i'll loop so like when i'm mixing i'll loop like half of a rock section into half of a of an electronic or programmed part until the transition seems seems very natural and you can't tell and so i think i think it's the transitions that can be the most ear popping or like oh like you know because my my biggest problem with kind of music that was out in 2010 2011 like right when like edm and dubstep was like into the fold of of like hard rock and and metalcore was that it felt like it was like one or the other like insert (laughs) you know insert part here insert part here and i've always wanted to try to make them hybrid and integrated and seamless and so you know like even on the slaves record that's about to drop I can't say when, but it's very much like a trap record meets 
R&B with some guitars on it, and I wanted it to not feel like one or the other. That's how the Siler record feels to me, is that we wanted to do it at the same time and not insert dance part for for eight seconds you know like to me i i was never a fan of that yeah to where the it's all part of the dna of the sound exactly so that there's you know even if there's everything programmed there's at least one ambient real guitar in there that goes with it because not everyone you know so that way everyone on stage just just not like sitting there with their thumbs up their asses like everyone's doing something it feels integrated even that one real guitar makes the other parts feel less out of nowhere good answer so colton david hunter is asking how did you approach recording a band like this wildlife that's all acoustic did you record oh that one was fun cool he said did you record the guitars differently considering they are meant to be a focal point in the mix well acoustic wise i did record it different than i normally do i very rarely get to do acoustics now but i'm but i have a lot of experience with it over the years of stuff i've done with you know all the stuff i kind of mentioned earlier so so it's not foreign to me i was very very accustomed to it and and I wanted to involve because I have a big live room and I wanted to actually involve that in the sound so instead of putting the acoustic in the ISO booth or in the vocal booth I had him out in the room and I put some gobos around it and I tried to make it so where like there's a, one distant mic and one close mic and one over the shoulder and so we we blended some things together to kind of create a sound that wasn't just it like had a little bit of space to it, which is what I like about it, is it has a little breathing room. Not to mention, and I got to give a lot of credit to Anthony and Kevin, but they know how to play their acoustics. Acoustic is the hardest instrument to record. I did a, you know, I did a unplugged, like a reimagined with Hands Like Houses, and we had a miserable time recording the acoustics. You can ask Al. It's like all this buzzing, and I'm like very anal about guitar acoustic buzzing. I think it sounds terrible. And we just hated each other. And it was like, because if you're not really used to it, and I don't mean like play once in a while, like, you know, Kevin from this wildlife is a pro at playing acoustic. Like that shit didn't buzz. Like he knew, because that's what he does. That's that's his instrument, you know? And so that was a big help. And, and then everything else was pretty straightforward. I mean, it really was just about peeling it back. And, and I have a lot of experience with recording some more peeled back stuff. It just kind of involved... Getting, getting back into the swing of it. All right. Rodney Altenbaugh is wondering, how was it working with the guys from Young Guns? I've seen that they go about doing their own pre-pro, and I believe the guitarist is doing all the heavy lifting with that side. Does it help having a band coming in that's prepared and make things move even more smoothly? What advice can you give other bands wanting to do their own pre-production before entering the studio? Well, working with Young Guns was awesome. Uh, they're great dudes. We actually started one of the songs from scratch, so there wasn't any pre-pro in. And then the other song we did together that made the record, we did three songs and two of them made the record. And one of them, John, who's the guitarist, had had this kind of like synth thing and this guitar thing, but like nothing really like in between. And so it was really just about taking what, the foundation and building off of it. And so we created, you know, we, we did most of the song here, but it, there was a song start, which is nice, because I don't always do that. We, we typically, when I co-write with a band, is we start from scratch. And so my advice for bands that kind of do have their pre-pro is just be open to changing it. Because a lot of times if you spend, you know, half a day 
programming this part and then I shit on it, I'm like, I don't think it's very good. I think we could beat it. Like, you're going to be resentful of me. And so, like, you have to go in, like, and I think you should still do it. And because it, it really can benefit uh, your vision of what you wanted the song to be. But I would just recommend to be very open-minded and not feeling like, oh, this is, we have to use it because I spent all this time on it. You know, it's really about the, our visions matching as opposed to, like, who put in what groundwork first. I see. All right. Here is one from Runar Magnuson. He's actually got two. Which is, do you feel that you have a consistent approach to writing or does it change depending on who you're writing with? And I'll ask you his second question later. Sure. Um, I think the formula is very similar, which is actually get to know what your artist sounds like. I feel like that's that's something that people tell me all the time is that they just didn't even really know what the artist sounded like or they had a preconceived notion as I as I try to study the band before we even start. So I already know the vocal range that the singer is in because there's nothing worse. I see this all the time, especially with, with female-fronted acts, is that a female range is so different than a male range. And so if you have this cool melody idea and it's in a dude's range and then you want them to sing it, you're just wasting time because it's it's so different. It's like when it's uncomfortable as a male singer, it's probably comfortable for for a female voice. And so or some high-pitched singers. And so I recommend really listening to the to their previous material, knowing how you want to do it different, how like maybe what your spin would be to it. And then seeing the right range and the right tuning, like just be educated. Bands really, really appreciate when you actually know what tuning they play in or what the singer's key is or, you know, like, you know, I think some producers will just be like, I think it should sound like this and you just play it and it's like, well, I don't really care what you wanted. And like, I try not to approach that. <laughs> I try to be a member of the project. <laughs> So, Runar Magnuson was wondering also, what are your favorite ways to deal with writer's block? Um, alcohol. No, um, you know, <laughs> writer's, writer's block is an interesting thing for for anyone because it can just be you, you don't have an idea at the time or uh, you just don't feel like it's good enough and you question yourself. But for me, as I try to create an atmosphere that feels creative, that's why I... You know, I painted my walls this gray color in my studio and I have these lights and I I have candles lit right now just for this podcast because I want it to feel comfortable. You know, I have a candle. I have like a break glass in case of emergency candle and it's my favorite candle on the planet and they stopped making it a few years ago. And I, so I only have like one of these left and so I'll light it for 10 minutes and I'll, you know, and I'll, and, and it makes me inspired. It, it really it really channels something for me. And, you know, and, and it's an interesting job because you're required to be creative all the time. Like, I don't get, I don't get to be like, guys, this is a co-write, but I got nothing. My bad. Like, you gotta, you gotta give it to them and they're, they're depending on you. And so I really, I try to, to put it out there that writer's block just isn't an option. Fair enough. And here's one from Sean O'Shaughnessy. And, got a few sure so I'm gonna just answer I'm just gonna ask you the one that I feel like uh, we haven't already covered sure. which is what's the worst case scenario you've been handed 
and how did you salvage it? Oh, how do we narrow that in to something more specific? Like, what's the worst case scenario? Like, what is... Like, like, how did I take lemons and make lemonade? Yeah. Whew. Um, like, that's a really, that's a really hard question. That is, that's the hardest question I think I've ever had in anything. <laughs> Let me wrap my head around it. I mean, I could give a few examples. I mean, there's situations where, you know, there was a plan set and the plan changes a little bit and you have to try to, to do the best without being resentful, without being angry at the artist, you know? And I think I think that can be a very tough thing is, is taking something that's happening and not making it personal. And, you know, it is personal to me. It's like, you didn't like what I did? That means you don't like me. That means that I'm not good at anything. Ah, and the wall's closing. But like, then, you, then I, I, take, <laughs> I take my 10 minutes of bitching and whining and I man up and I say, how can I make the most of this situation? And so it's like... You know, I think one of the one of the toughest things is for me personally is when I lose a mixing gig that I for a record I produced because I take great pride in finishing something I started. And you know, sometimes you know, there's a record that I can't listen to cuz I think the mix is so fucking bad that I think it ruined my vision. And I have to deal with that. And you know, I'll never say what it is because it's not you know, at the end of the day, the artist has to really love it. And that doesn't necessarily line up with what you had planned for it. And, you know, and sometimes there's victories. Sometimes you lose something and they want yours back. And then you're like, yeah, and like, that's right, you know, and, and it just happens. And and you just have to kind of take it day by day and case by case, you know, and you hope you hope that uh, the loyalty you've shown gets returned back to you. I completely agree. Well, Eric, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I can't believe that it's been this long. I mean, it flew by. I feel like we just had a cup of coffee. Yeah, man. We <laughs> uh, And I'm sure that we could do a part two and talk for a couple hours then as well. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to. I had a lot of fun, and I'm honored to be asked to do this. And, and anyone listening, feel please feel free to hit me up and ask questions. You know, I'm happy to talk about my, my life and my story. And the good news is I feel like I'm just, I'm just beginning. I, I'm in it for, you know. I'm in it for a while till the caffeine kills me eventually, but uh, I'm here. <laughs> well, thanks for being here. All right, thank you. The Unstoppable Recording Machine Podcast is brought to you by Balaguer Guitars. Founded in 2014, Balaguer Guitars strives to bring modern aesthetics and options to vintage-inspired designs. Go to balaguerguitars.com for more info. This episode of the podcast is also brought to you by Fishman, inspired performance technology. Fishman is dedicated to helping musicians of all styles achieve the truest sound possible wherever and whenever they plug in. Go to Fishman.com for more info. To ask us questions, make suggestions, and interact, visit NailTheMix.com slash podcast and subscribe today.